we've been going through first uh, and second Peter, uh, and there's been a number of things that have come out of that study where Peter is encouraging us to look forward. Um, to be aware of the reality that Jesus is returning. So uh, we finished last week, Second Peter. Um, next week, we're going to move on into First John. But I thought this week, rather than uh, just jumping straight into First John, I'd do something a little bit different. Um, and that is teach a, a study. Uh, I did this a little while back uh, in a different format, but it fits so perfectly in kind of where we are in our uh, journey through the New Testament that I thought I'd throw it in here as well. Uh, so the theme of the study is simply called the inheritance of the saints. It's a theme that comes up throughout the New Testament. Now, if you turn to the book of Colossians, if you've got your Bibles there, which I'm sure you have, um, just in Colossians, uh, in the opening chapter, Paul says this, he says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So again, even in, in the early church, prayer was such an important part of what they did. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Uh, just noting here this uh, statement for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Uh, it's literally because of the hope, uh, this expectation, this confidence. This isn't a wishful thinking. It's not, well, it wouldn't it be nice if, you know, no, this is what we are clearly told in scripture as the, the hope that we have that we, we should be looking forward to. But let's ask the question then, what is it that is stored away? You know, we're told of the hope and we speak often about the hope and uh, Peter's mentioned a number of times these kind of things. But what is it actually that we are to be looking for and looking forward to? Well, in verse 12 of Colossians, a few verses further on, Paul says this, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, that word meet uh, in the Greek, uh, it's simply to enable or to qualify. So it's saying that God has qualified us. Now, this is because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been saved. We've been qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, that the saints are given something, that they've been uh, qualified to receive something. And this is this inheritance that we're going to be looking at this morning. So quite simply, for those who are in Christ, we know that we are assured of salvation. That's very clear throughout the New Testament. In fact, even the Old Testament has many allusions um, to that security we have. But we see we're also promised rewards for faithfulness. And previously we've gone through looking at some of the rewards. Uh, there are at least five crowns mentioned in the New Testament as rewards for faithfulness. That when we get to Revelation chapter 4, we see a picture of the church before the throne in heaven. And we're all laying our crowns before the throne. Of course, we sing that great hymn, crown him with many crowns. And we don't keep the crowns, the crowns that we are given as rewards, we give to Jesus as a love gift. And then at the time of the second coming, we find that Jesus is crowned with those crowns. Um, so in scripture, it's one of the only things I can see that we actually get the opportunity to truly give to Jesus because everything else is his already. Um, but it's a, a great opportunity to say thank you, to show our love for him by giving these these crowns that have been a reward for our faithful service. And of course, Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter six, that we should lay up our treasure in heaven. 
So there are various rewards, certainly, that are spoken of through the New Testament and various responsibilities um, that will be afforded to those who are in Christ. But in addition to the rewards, we now qualify to receive an inheritance. And it's the inheritance that we're told is reserved in heaven for us. Now, a verse that we looked at uh, a few weeks back now in First Peter, Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the fact that Jesus really truly was raised from the dead, and we've commented before, it's one of the greatest, most attested to facts of history. Uh, the world would deny it. They'd scoff, they'd laugh at the idea that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And yet those that have actually looked at this objectively, the evidence is overwhelming. Those who are on the mailing list for CSM, Creation Science Movement, uh, will have probably in the last week or so got a uh, latest um, flyer uh, booklet from them. Uh, and one of the articles in there is talking about the certainty we have of the resurrection from extra biblical sources, so from outside of the Bible. Uh, and it's quite fascinating how uh, much has been recorded, not in Scripture, but outside of Scripture, attesting again to the fact of history that is the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, what Peter's saying here is that that because this is a real thing we have a real hope it's alive uh, so the resurrection of christ from the dead uh, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you you know some of us may have been beneficiaries of inheritance in the past somebody typically would die and then we are left something maybe in their will that's often how an inheritance situation would work in our culture and our time. Um, you know, and those inheritances can sometimes be a, a blessing. They can sometimes um, uh, afford us all sorts of different things. But of course, all of those things ultimately will fade away. None of those things are eternal. They're only temporal. Um, and of course, what we're told here is that in contrast to the worldly kind of inheritance that we might receive, we have an inheritance as Christians that is incorruptible. It's not going to grow old or decay with time and with age. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's something that's really good. It's good for us uh, and uh, something that we can hope for and look forward to. And it fades not away. As we're told, it's reserved inheritance. So again, the question, what are we to inherit? And then the question also we need to ask is, well, can we know? Well, the answer to that is, yes, we can know. Let me just share with you uh, a verse of the Bible that uh, winds me up, not because of what Scripture says, but because so many times this verse is misquoted. Now, you'll be familiar with the verse. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And verse 9 says this, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And at that point, most stop reading and walk away with that kind of quizzical look on their face. Yeah, I wonder what God has prepared for those that love him. And there's even Christian songs and worship songs that have been written based around this verse, you know, that, that we don't know what God has prepared. And oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we had some sort of understanding? And, and the incredible thing is, if you read verse 10, it says this. By the way, the first part of the quote is from Isaiah 64. Is it is It is written. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah. But the next verse says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. 
So the first part of the verse says, you know, I has not seen nor has he heard has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him in the past. But now God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. This is incredible that we are told here that God has revealed to us by his spirit these things that we would be desiring to look into to understand. So again, what is it that God has revealed to us and what are we to inherit? Well, a good starting place uh, is John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus said this as he was speaking to the disciples. They were concerned that he was going away. He already told them he was leaving. They didn't understand quite how and where and all these things at that point. But then Jesus tells them that they don't need to, to worry. He says this, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, the where I am, there you may be also. Now, this is an incredible statement that Jesus was telling the disciples of what he was going to do. Now, the disciples would probably have cottoned on to what Jesus was alluding to here, because there's an intentional model that Jesus presents to the disciples. And for us, if we do a little bit of diligent study, we'll realize that this statement of Jesus is actually based upon a Jewish wedding. Typically in a Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride is purchased or betrothed. Now that betrothal is far more than an engagement typically in our culture. The betrothal is the commitment an engagement typically in this culture and our culture uh, could be broken off before the wedding day but at the point of betrothal for a jewish couple then the groom undertakes to care for her even in the event of his death which is quite significant and this is why jesus uses this model the groom would typically return to his father's house to build an annex onto his father's house, which would be a place for then himself and later his bride to come and dwell together. And they would typically dwell in this annex of their father's house and to prepare a room. So Jesus uses this uh, model in speaking to the disciples. Uh, now the bride, in the meantime, while the groom goes away to prepare the house, the bride is left with a helper to prepare for this wedding day, for the time that the groom is going to come back for her. And in that time, she is looked after by a chaperone, a helper, who typically will help her to cleanse herself ritually, spiritually, and so on. Uh, she'll have a, a special ceremonial bath, a mikvah, and the idea is you remove anything man-made, you know, jewellery, nail polish, all those kind of things, and you're getting ready for your wedding day. Well, guess what? We've got a helper the Holy Spirit who's come to prepare us for our wedding day, to get rid of everything of this world, all the impurities, all the things of this life, that we would be pure and ready, that when we meet our Saviour, when we meet our groom, Jesus, that we are as a bride prepared for a husband. Now, at some point in the future, the groom in the Jewish wedding scenario would return. There would be the blowing of a trumpet or a chauffeur, the ram's horn, uh, and the groom returns to claim his bride. Now, that's exactly what we're told in Thessalonians that Jesus will do. There will be this trumpet blast that the groom will return, that Jesus will return, and he will gather his bride and take his bride back to the place that he'd been preparing. We refer to that often as the rapture of the church. 
It's something that is seen throughout scripture. There's numerous examples uh, of that and so on. But it's again based upon this Jewish wedding model. And of course, then the bride is taken back to the father's house. And whilst they're there, they then celebrate the marriage. Uh, And typically there's this long festival celebration uh, that goes on as they celebrate together. So that's the Jewish wedding. And that's what Jesus alludes to in John 14. That he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again, just as a Jewish groom would. I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm going to take you back to that place I've been preparing. Now, just think about this for a second. Because creation took just six days. Of course, the world would scoff and mock. And yet, actually, the science is far more in favor of a sudden instantaneous creation uh, than this suggestion of long ages uh, with gradual change. We talked about that the other week and showed just the, the foolishness of the so-called science that's put forward by man. Easily unraveled by uh, anybody with, with or without a degree. It's not that complicated to see the holes in the evolutionary theory and these ideas that have surrounded it of long ages and so on. Peter addressed that as we were looking at our study last time. But creation, according to scripture, took just six days. And by the way, anybody that has a problem with that, you need to go to Exodus 20, uh, verse 11, where we're told that God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them in six days. And we're also told that God wrote that with his own finger. And Hebrews were told it's impossible for God to lie. So that's our starting point. God doesn't lie. God tells the truth. And what he's recorded in his word isn't some allegory or some myth. Or uh, as I was told by one prominent evangelical evangelist, uh, that Genesis was just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. Uh, as a ridiculous statement when you realize that the Torah was in existence way before they got to Babylon. But that as a side. Many people hold this, uh, these other views. But the Bible is very clear. What Christ has been preparing for his bride, though, has taken 2,000 years. Creation took six days. And this world is incredible. Even though we live in a fallen world, it's an amazing world. There's incredible design in all that we see. You know, I was looking yesterday. Last weekend, I went out and I cleaned up all the leaves that were in the back garden and uh, blew them all down the side path and bagged up some of them. And um, we've got a nice grass bank down the side of our house. And we have no trees ourselves. So I returned the leaves. They're not my property. So I just returned them to the grass bank where they belonged. And, uh, you know, th- but this morning, I noticed again, all the leaves from the night have all blown down. So I've got loads more leaves in the garden but i just think how incredible it is that each year the leaves grow on the trees and a leaf is complicated if you've ever looked at the anatomy of a leaf you probably never felt the need to but if you've ever done that uh, the the leaf is incredible the the veins inside the leaf that carry um the water um to and from and the sunlight and this, this chloroform process that goes on it, it's really quite staggering uh the complexity of just what we would think to as a simple leaf that just falls off the tree and gets blown and brushed away and so on you know that's part of creation and that's incredible but that took six days and what christ has been preparing for his bride has taken now some 2,000 years in the terms of the, the time that Jesus went away to where we are now waiting for Jesus to come back. So let me ask you another question. Do we believe Christ's promise? Okay, that he's gone to prepare that place and he will come again to receive us. You see, a lot of this comes down to an issue of perspective. It's a little bit like Lekum was speaking about earlier, uh, about that getting ready and that focus and having that mindset. You see, our understanding of the future will affect the way we live in the present. You see, if we are living expecting Jesus to return, expecting that promise that he made to be fulfilled, to come true, 
then it will change the way that we're living right now. And that, of course, is something that's echoed throughout the New Testament. I just want to read you a quote from John Piper. He said this, uh, The taproot out of which sprouts all the weeds of sin is the taproot of unbelief in the promises of God. When you trust or believe in a promise of God, you glorify God. In fact, trusting somebody's promise is the most fundamental honour you can do that person. The reverse is also true. The greatest contempt you can bring down upon a person is to say to them, I can't trust you. So when we don't trust the promise of God, we bring contempt upon him. We give him a vote of no confidence. So again, do we trust God's promise that he will return for us, that Jesus said very clearly he's coming again to receive us to himself. Now in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 4 we looked at this and spent a bit of time the ladies went through this recently in their study uh, whereby we are given uh, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature it's an incredible statement having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust you see what peter is saying is that our perspective affects performance if we believe the promises that god has made it will affect the way that we live now you see god's promises give us perspective so with that in mind let's have a little look at some of the things that scripture tells us that we can look forward to a glimpse if you will of our inheritance so if you want to turn with me to revelation chapter 21 uh, we're going to pick it up from there and we read in verse 1 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Notice what John says in this record. He saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when will this occur? Well, if we look at it on a a diagram effectively, uh, we see and we know from Scripture that there is a period of seven years that is coming at some point soon, and uh, we can see that because of the signs of the times that we live in. Um, you know, we're told in scripture that there's going to become a world leader who's going to set up a, effectively a one world government. Uh, and, uh, unless you have a, a mask, you won't be able to buy or sell. Sorry, a mark. Um, we have masks now without which we can't buy or sell. Uh, I, 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 I jest, but actually I see all these things as forerunners. You know, that we'd be encouraged to wear masks and without a mask, we can't buy or sell effectively at the moment. But it is just a stepping stone. People are starting to get ready and get conditioned and it's starting to accept that there are things that are going to have to change. And soon we're going to be in a position, there will be a world leader and he is going to come up with a system that no doubt will be ideal for track and trace. No doubt be ideal for making sure that we've not been in contact with anybody that has a virus, be it coronavirus, be it whatever comes next. You start to see how all these things are possible. So we are living in the days of these things, uh, the last days. And as I say, Daniel speaks about this world leader. He's going to establish a peace accord or ratify an agreement with Israel for a period of seven years. It's the last seven years of a prophecy that was given to Daniel in chapter nine. The first 483 years of that prophecy have all been fulfilled and they all came true with incredible precision to the day, I would add. So this last seven years is on our horizon. We don't know when it's going to start. We do know the scripture makes it very clear that the church will be removed from this earth before the beginning of that seven year period. 
It's a time of wrath. Isaiah makes it very clear. God will pour out his wrath on this unbelieving world. You know, and you've only got to look at these laws that are being passed. You know, um, the uh, abortion laws um, that have been passed, the number of children that have been aborted. You know, even this um, partial birth abortion. Uh, it, it's it's sickening that they are saying that a, a baby that uh, they tried to abort, it was, it was unsuccessful. Uh, if that baby then has to go full term, is delivered, they can actually abort the baby as it's born. And that is just horrific. I mean, it's murder. Uh, and it amazes me that they don't see it and people don't um, go on marches um, like they do with all these other uh, quests and things they get on at the moment. That's just one thing. But there are many things going on in this world that God is going to bring his judgment upon this world because of these things. So that seven year period is a time of God's wrath. Now, at the end of that seven year period, we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, to make it clear, that is not the rapture. Jude uh, actually gives us a prophecy which was given by Enoch way back in the book of Genesis. Enoch gives us this record that Jude records for us um, that when the Lord comes back, when Jesus returns, he will come with his saints. And the saints obviously have gone to be with him prior to that, to go to this place that he's been preparing. That gives us the second coming and that will then start this period of a thousand years, which I believe very much will be a literal period of a thousand years. Um, the early church believed it would be a literal period of a thousand years. It wasn't until the time of Augustine and others, they started to allegorize this. And the reason they did is because they saw that the persecution that had been coming from the Roman Empire had effectively stopped. And so some well-meaning believers in round about 300, 400 AD started saying, well, maybe we're in this period of peace that the book of Revelation spoke about. Maybe this is the millennium. Now, interestingly, even then they believed it would be a period of a thousand years, uh, a literal period of a thousand years. And so some of them kind of worked out roughly when that was going to come to an end. So about 13, 1400 AD. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, nothing seemed to significantly change. Uh, and of course, if you know anything about the, the Dark Ages and Middle Ages, you'll know it wasn't a time of peace with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. And Satan certainly wasn't bound during that time. Um, so the uh, the idea then started to be pushed forward that, well, maybe this uh, period of, of this thousand years is allegorical. Maybe it's just a, uh, a uh, indicative of a long period of peace. And they started to try and say that it wasn't real, it wasn't literal, and so on. Of course, in the days we live in, and because of the doctrine of the Catholic Church, which fell over into the Reformation churches and so on, so much of the uh, understanding of eschatology, end times things from the scriptural perspective, were never readdressed, never looked at again. Same as the teaching regarding Israel's plan and purpose the Catholic Church of course um, doesn't see any purpose or future for Israel and many of the Reformation churches including the Church of England uh, never readdress this issue and uh, their understanding of Israel in God's plan so a lot of inherent issues because of a lack of study of God's word of course uh, God's word is there anybody can freely go pick it up and read and study and if you do you'll see these things are very clear and all of God's promises have been fulfilled literally you know in uh, the Old Testament Micah prophesied that Bethlehem would be the place the Messiah would be born literally he was and you know every prophecy you could look at Jeremiah's prophecies about the captivity in Babylon being 70 years it was to the day 
all the prophecies you could cite in scripture that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally. So we have no reason to suggest that this period of a thousand years that's coming will be anything other than a literal period of a thousand years when Jesus will rule and reign on the throne of David. Now we're coming soon to the Christmas season. People will be uh, no doubt reading from Luke's gospel and Luke's account when Gabriel spoke to Mary. He said to Mary that this child that she was carrying would sit on the throne of David. That hasn't happened yet. It's a prophecy. It's a promise of what is to come. Now, unless Gabriel got it wrong, which I don't think, or I guess Gabriel lied, which is even more unlikely, it's a true statement of what is coming. Of course, the disciples thought when Jesus came the first time, that would be the time he would sit on the throne. They were expecting the Messiah to do that. It didn't happen the first time. Eventually, the disciples realized that in the book of Acts, they asked Jesus the question just before he returns to heaven. You know, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom effectively will you set up your throne now and jesus said it's not for you to know the times of the seasons it doesn't say it won't happen it just says not yet so after the second coming we will get to that period of which the old testament speaks so much in fact there is more in the old testament about the millennium as we refer to it than in the new testament after this period of a thousand years we get to the great white throne judgment and that will be where all those who have died without Christ will be caught up to that throne and they will be judged according to their works. Interesting that many religions will talk about, you know, good works being the the way to uh, to get to God. Well, it is a way to get to God, but it's a way to get to God's throne of judgment. Uh, and when God judges you according to your works by his standard, nobody will be able to stand uh, and say that, well, actually, my good works outweighed my bad works, as if logically that would make any sense anyway. That would be like, you know, driving your car and then being stopped by the police for speeding and saying, well, officer, I have driven down this road more times at the speed limit than not, and expect the officer to say, oh, well, that's okay, then off you go. It's nonsense. We we know inherently that good works never outweigh bad works. It doesn't work that way. It's just a foolish notion. notion. Well, after the great white throne, uh, or at that time, we find that heaven and earth flee away. This current order of things will be destroyed. And we read this in Peter's account in Second Peter. And this we looked at a little bit in detail last week. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So literally everything's going to be loosened. Uh, the atoms themselves will break apart. Uh, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be built up. So if you were basing it on good works, well, you know, it's not going to help because it's all going to be destroyed. Uh, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Now, once again, talk about the issue of perspective. Jesus or uh, Peter says here, and obviously inspired of the Lord himself, you know, that because we know these things are going to happen, it should affect our lifestyle, the way we live. In 2 Peter 3, 10, uh, verse 12, it says, Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But then this great verse, Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? You know, when you think of the world that we live in, all the problems that we have, all the challenges, the sickness and the pain and all of this, you were given this as our uh, hope, that which we should be looking forward to. 
once again perspective should affect our performance and God gives us these promises so that we would have that perspective in actual fact in the book of Proverbs chapter 30 I think it's verse 12 we're told that without vision people cast off restraint my paraphrase of that is where you have nothing to aim at you get sloppy and it's true in life but it's very true in your spiritual walk that if you are not having something to aim at something to to look forward to it's very easy to get complacent or sloppy in your christian walk we need to have something of course prophecy we're told is a light that shines brighter unto that glorious day prophecy should be something that we hold on to and look forward to the fulfillment of those things now back into revelation john says this i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea now that's quite a staggering statement a lot of us don't tend to think about this and this is why i want to just just get us to pause and think through some of these things this morning this is going to be a completely new beginning it will be radically different because at the moment 70 percent or so of the face of the earth is made up of water uh interestingly enough the average depth is only about 2.3 meters um which is interesting um for other discussions other times but the reason we have the hydro cycle cycle and system on the earth at the moment is because of the fact there is so much water on the earth apparently about 1.5 trillion tons of rain falls every day on the earth that's staggering to imagine that that much is up there in the clouds and 1.5 trillion tons of rainfall a day Now you've got to think, how is it going to affect the trees if there is no more sea, if there's no more hydro system? I mean, presumably, therefore, there will be no more rain. So what impact will it have on the trees? Are they going to have roots? Because at the moment, trees put down their roots into the ground to draw up the moisture from the ground, which comes through, obviously, the rain. Will the leaves be multicoloured? Again, the reason the leaves are green is all to do with the hydro system and the way they are and the, the, the energy they filter out from the sun, and it's to do with their current structure. So there's lots of interesting questions that start to, to come as we think about these things. How will the new system work? Well, we're not given the details. We're just told that it is going to be very distant different there will be no more sea and why no more sea well it's not needed anymore for its cleansing action you see the sea at the moment provides salt it purges it cleanses and it preserves our planet in other words it acts very much like the lungs the liver and the kidneys of the earth itself the the sea is vital to this cleansing mechanism that we have in place but the new system is going to be perfect so there won't be a need for the sea in the way that there currently is in this order of things john goes on and says that i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down from god out of heaven and notice as he says prepared as a bride adorned for her husband incredible statement saying this was so glorious so beautiful just like a bride on a wedding day Just to draw attention, though, John says, I, John. Why does John put it that way? Well, it's as if to say, look, guys, you can trust me. You know me. You know what I've said is true. I'm telling you that I saw this. This isn't fabricated. This isn't some fanciful notion. This isn't some poetry I'm writing. I saw this and I'm telling you about it. You know, this was such an incredible revelation, so overwhelming, so breathtaking that John almost feels a need here to assure us of its validity and say, look, it's, it's I, John, that's telling you these things. Now, as I said, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to move into a study of First John. And in chapter one, John says this, that which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Notice what John says, that we were eyewitnesses. We we touched, we actually walked with Jesus. We, we, we know he was real and all of the things that we've attested to. He says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light in him is no darkness at all. We'll come back to that idea of light in a little bit. But John makes this statement. Effectively, John is saying, I'm not interested in fiction, but only in that which is verifiable. I saw these things. They are real. I'm telling you the truth. And so John again says here, I, John, saw the holy city. And now start to look at these things. It's holy city. It's an interesting uh, combination of words because we don't normally associate holy and city in the same sentence. You know, often we think of the inner city and it's associated with problems, with crime, with drugs, with prostitution, with all those kind of things. But the closer we get to the center of this city, the better it gets. The new Jerusalem, we're told, will come down out of heaven. And it's told, we're told it comes from God. Now, God, we know, delights to give his best to his children. And of course, what parent, what good parent wouldn't do so? You know, as a parent, I delight in being able to give gifts to my children. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I love to see the look on their faces as they're given something. You know, uh, it's, it's a really wonderful thing as a parent. Well, God is, is a better parent, a better father than any of us. And God delights in giving his best to his own. You know, we're told it's as a bride, again, as we mentioned a moment ago, perfect and ready. I remember my bride on her wedding day, you know, uh, I think she was late, but, you know, it was worth it. Uh, you know, brides just, just put that effort, that work in to make sure that everything is right. Uh, and I'm sure for those that are married, you, you remember those days. And I'm sure all of us have been at weddings and you see how radiant the bride looks. Well, John is saying this city is just like that. You can't look and go, well, I would have done that. It's going to be so incredible. We just wow. Verse 3 says, and I heard a great voice. Uh, interestingly, 21 times in the book of Revelation, we hear a great voice. This is the last one we hear, the last great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, this is a declaration of great importance. All these great voices in Revelation are such. Uh, and this is just the same, that God's desire from before the foundation of the world is being fulfilled, that God is going to dwell, tabernacle literally, with men. Now, we saw it in the Garden of Eden, but God didn't give up on the idea of Eden as some misguided of thought was the case. Now, God's plan that he started in Eden will be completed and we here see in the book of revelation what god is looking forward to and what god has already pre-planned that that walk will be resumed notice the number of times we're told here with them with them god wants to walk with his creation the god who created us who, who made all things wants a relationship with us he's going to be our god and we'll be his people Notice also this statement that the tabernacle of God is with men. That idea of tabernacle is the dwelling amongst effectively. Jesus in John 1.14, we're told, came and tabernacled and dwelt among us. 
literally physically dwelt among us. And that's what God wants to do. And of course, at the second coming, many of us believe that the second coming will occur on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish feast, uh, the feast uh Pardon me, the feast of Israel all have significance prophetically and um, will be fulfilled in various ways. The feast of tabernacles seems to be that which will occur on the, the date or the, the, the time of the second coming and Jesus will return to tabernacle amongst his uh, people Israel and the the, uh, the earth for a thousand years, the beginning of the millennium. But then at the end, as we're looking at here, as we get to the new heavens, and new earth, God himself is going to dwell with us. And God says they shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. What a wonderful statement. And this is the first thing that we're told that God does, to wipe away the tears from their eyes. God recognizes and, of course, understands that we are going through very difficult times. There's all sorts of trials. There's all sorts of uh, pain and heartache. Uh, there's sickness. There's death. There's suffering. All of those things exist now. And all they do is prove to us that this world is not how it should have been. You know, atheists come up with all sorts of silly notions as to, you know, these things and why there is suffering from their perspective, because, of course, they deny that God exists. And I'll try and put some clever spin on it. But ultimately, the reality is that death and sin and sickness just simply show that there is something wrong with creation and the creator. And that is what Jesus came to put right. Now, in this order of things, we will endure those things. But when we get to this stage... It will all be changed and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And notice this, it's God himself that is going to step forward. You know, once again, you know, from a parental perspective, those of you with children, you will have experienced a time when your child has fallen over and they've hurt themselves. And, and you know, that, that moment, your child will do one of two things. They'll look for mommy or look for daddy. They'll look for someone to come to pick them up and to wipe away the tear and to tell them it's going to be okay. Well, that is what God is going to do with each one of us. With all the challenges and the disappointments and the pain and the heartaches that we've gone through, God himself is going to come and wipe the tears away from your face. This is what we are looking forward to. This is our hope. This is the 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 focus that we should have as we endure these things. And this is why Paul in the book of Romans says that he considers the present sufferings not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And there's a bigger picture there in itself. But just that statement that what's coming is almost, we can, well, it, people says it is worth what we're going through. We will look back and all, as hard as these things are, we'll look back and go, yeah, I see what God was doing now. It makes sense to me. It may not make sense now, but it will do. And God himself is going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. We're told in the book of Psalms that God keeps all of our tears in a bottle. God stores it up. God knows every tear that falls and he knows why. Told that there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. The idea in the Greek here is that they are genuine and dependable. This is what John is saying, uh, record, or John is actually told to write this. Write down, John, that these things are genuine and they are dependable. God himself wants that in the record. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of life, of the water of life freely. What a great statement. It is done. 
is completed. You know, what God set out to do with the beginning of the work of creation is now completed. God has got it where he wanted it to be. In fact, we read of God's will in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, because we're told that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. This is what God's will is, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. It's because God wanted to do this. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, it's a great statement, but it means when everything is said and done, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Everything is brought together in one in Jesus Christ. And verse 6 of Revelation 21 says, And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now notice what we just read a moment ago, that I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Literally, it's let him come and drink undeservedly. We don't deserve this. We haven't earned it. We didn't do something to gain credit with God. And God says, well, okay, you can have this. No, this is purely because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And simply is accessed by putting our faith and trust in him. The offer has gone out to all the world. Everybody can be a beneficiary, a recipient of this grace. Contrast this with the ungodly, though. Notice what we're told that the righteous, anyone that is athirst, if you're thirsty, you're thirsting, you get to drink of the water, uh, the fountain of the water of life. If you look in Luke chapter 16, we see an interesting account there. We're told that there came to pass that there was a beggar, uh, which was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In hell he lift up his eyes, this is the rich man, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus, this was the beggar, in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I want you just to think what's going on here. The rich man wants his thirst satisfied and yet he has no physical body. He's dead. He no longer has a physical tongue for water to be placed upon. What is this saying? It's telling us that the thirst he has was not physical, but spiritual. That's the thirst that he's longing to be satisfied in this place of torment. You see, sin promises that which it cannot deliver. The reason this individual ended up in this place was simply because he was following after the lusts of the flesh, looking to be satisfied. Those thirsts that he had in his life, wanting them to be satisfied and going after whatever he wanted. And now he's in a place where he realized that none of those things satisfied that ultimate thirst that every human being has, which really is a relationship with our creator God. People will deny it. They'll walk away from it. But it doesn't change the reality. You see, sin won't deliver it will always leave you unfulfilled it will always leave you unsatisfied it can never appease a longing it will always leave you eternally thirsting just as this individual that jesus alludes to here it's been said before that sin will take you further than you wanted to go it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay now again that's in contrast to that which we're looking at for the believers where we're told in Revelation 21 verse 7 that he that overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. We are called to be God's own children. We are adopted into his family. We read in the beginning of 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons 
of God. And let me state again for anybody that's not heard me say this, I've said it many times, that that expression, the sons of God, uh, if your translation of this has tried to change it to children of God to try and make it politically correct, scrub it out, please, and put sons of God, because the commentators and those that have tried to correct what they see as a, uh, an archaism, um, they're trying to say, well, you know, the Bible's not sexist, of course. You know, the, the, they missed the point completely. God is saying that we are all given, whether we're male or female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, we are all given the position of being sons of God. What does that mean? The son was the one who would inherit. The son was the one who would get the portion from the father, the largest portion. And so by saying sons of God, it really means that whether you're male or female or whatever, that you are going to inherit that portion that God reserves for his firstborn effectively. That's why these these little nuances in the text are so important. Again, we are adopted into God's family. But Revelation 21.8 says, The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murders, um, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, idolaters, liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a, a contrast. And by the way, the fearful there, speaking of the cowardly, Notice as well, speaking of the second death, it's been said before that if you are born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you're born with a physical birth. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, and then a spiritual birth, you're born of water and the spirit. Well, then you're only going to die once. You'll only die a physical death. if We're not raptured. If you're born once and you're not born again of the spirit of God, you will die twice. You'll die a physical death and then you'll die ultimately that spiritual death notice what god says here though these are the ones who will not inherit uh, the fearful which is again the cowardly uh, those who are too uh fearful to to respond to god were worried about what other people might say didn't want to you know uh lose friends or credibility or whatever uh, wanted to have their position in society so didn't want to consider the things of god because of their reputation in other words they were more concerned about their name than god's name the unbelieving People say, well, I'm a good person. I don't believe that God would send people to hell. I don't, you know, and they they have this belief issue. They don't believe it's true. And they think that being as a good, being a good person is good enough. And we've said already it's not. The phrase abominable in the Greek, it just means to stink. And it's anything that is abhorrent to God. Murderers. And Jesus in the Beatitudes makes it clear that, that includes even hatred within the heart. Whoremongers, that includes anything that's sexually immoral, which we have a world full of. Sorcerers, it comes from the Greek word pharmakia. It has to do with the using and the selling of drugs uh, and so on. Trying to get yourself into an altered state of consciousness. It's a very, very dangerous thing because you open yourself up to a world that we are not intended to have a relationship or connection or any uh, fellowship with as such. Uh, There is, of course, other dimensions that we don't understand fully. Uh, There is an angelic realm. uh, And God sometimes allows his angels to step into our realm, but we are not to step into theirs. The idea of idolaters, again, it's making a God to suit yourself. Um, Liars, well, it doesn't specify the size or the color. You know, it doesn't have to be a big lie. It could be a white lie, but it's still a lie. What about hell? Is hell just an allegory or a symbolism in all of these things? Well, some teach that it's not a real place. Some teach annihilation, that when you die, that's it, it's all over. Well, clearly that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus actually talked more about hell than he did about any other single doctrine. He taught that hell was real. 
It was eternal. He said that the worm will never die and the fire is never quenched. I just want to read to you an article that was published in Time magazine. Somebody wrote, excellent topic. I truly enjoyed reading. Does heaven exist? I'm a devout Christian and don't give much thought to heaven. <laughs> Interesting. My spirituality isn't based on an anthropomorphic kick-butt God who will throw four generations of children into eternal damnation because some distant forefather ticked him off. Heaven is the flip side of the absolutely barbaric notion of hell that evolved under that kick-butt mindset. To me, God is a symbol for something unfathomable. An utter mystery that fills my heart with joy and my spirit with song. Well, that was the letter that was published in Time magazine. Ray Comfort, some of you will be familiar with, wrote this response. Notice the use of the words, to me. That is the key. To be an idolater, you make a God to sue yourself, one devoid of reference to sin, righteousness and judgment. Make sure he or she likes the things you like and hates the things you hate. If you like lust, so will your God. If your God doesn't mind lying and stealing... Then you can, oops, sorry, apologies, go back. Then you can lie, steal, and lust to your heart's content. Your God will fill your heart with joy and your spirit with song right up until Judgment Day. I thought it was quite a poignant response to that. I just want to read this to you from John Bunyan. He said, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thy hair stand upright on thy head. But, oh, what will thou do when not only the supposition of the devils appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with thee, howling, roaring, screeching in such a hideous manner that thou will be even at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after ten thousand years an end should come, there will be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell for so many thousand of years, as there are stars in the firmament, or drops in the sea, or stands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever. How long will it torment thy soul, and how many are in the net moving toward that furnace of fire? Scary reality, uh, John Bunyan records for us. Spurgeon said this, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself, be sure of that. He also said, He knows not the grace of God, who has no desire that others should know it also. You will assuredly long for the souls of others if God has saved your soul. Okay, let's get back on to our perspective then. We're told for believers that came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, that holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This is the destination of the saints, by the way. And in uh, Hebrews 11, we read that Abraham, when he was called to go to a place which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. But notice this, but by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles. He just lived in tents. He didn't put down roots. He didn't make it his permanent home. 
with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham knew that there was something bigger and better coming than he could ever build on this earth. And Abraham, we know, was wealthy. He had 318 trained servants and so on. Money and resources wasn't a problem. It was his perspective of what's coming that changed the way he lived his life. It says, for you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burnt with fire and onto blackness and darkness and tempest, speaking of Sinai, where God came down and gave Moses the commandments and the sound of a trumpet with the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that word, which should not be spoken to them anymore. The people were frightened. They didn't want God to speak. It says, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as the beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That was just what Sinai was like. But he says, but you are coming to Mount Sinai and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. I mean, Sinai was staggering and the people of Israel were fearful. I mean, this is going to be something so utterly breathtaking. And this is to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator, the one who's brokered this new agreement, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so we carry on in Revelation and having the glory of God, her light was uh, like unto the most precious stones, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal. The glory of God. Now, there's a lot in scripture that refers to the Shekinah glory. In Exodus, when the tabernacle was set up and erected, the glory of God came down and covered the tabernacle. Uh, Moses, we're told, was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because this glory came and filled it. The same in Second Chronicles, when Solomon had completed the temple. The glory of God came and filled the place uh, so that they, they couldn't carry on ministering there. They had to, to step outside. And uh, we read, in just finishing off in 2 Chronicles 7, And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon his house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Now, just think that's what it was like then. We are going to be living in the presence of this glory. It is really just staggering for our minds to try and comprehend. But this city, we're told, had a wall great and high and 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east, three gates, the north three, the south three and the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, or he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length of it is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Just to give you some little glimpse of what we've got coming then. So this New Jerusalem, we're told twelve thousand furlongs. Uh, that's roughly 1,500 miles. Now, some think it will be a cube from the details because it's the length, the breadth, and the height are all the same. Others have suggested it could be a pyramid, but often pyramids have been associated with false worship. So I think most commentators tend to go down the road of saying this new city is going to be built like a cube. 
Uh, however, God uh, has used cubes, or so God has used cubes in the past uh, in the various models that we see. So if we look at the tabernacle, for example, uh, the Holy of Holies in the center was a cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. If we look at the temple, the temple itself had a Holy of Holies. And that, again, had a cube at the center, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. So quite interesting just to see that's what God's used in the past. And so it may well be that we've got the cube is how the new Jerusalem will be. Ancient Babylon, interestingly enough, was 15 miles uh, on each side. But it's just a poor imitation, man's best, if you like, at building a wonderful, perfect city. As incredible as ancient Babylon with its hanging gardens, all that was. The New Jerusalem, as I said, is going to be 1,500 miles square. Now, to give you some idea geographically, that would cover pretty much all of the British Isles, all the way down to Spain, all across France and Belgium and Italy and uh, over into Eastern Europe, a huge area. And this is going to be not just flat, not two-dimensional, but three-dimensional. And then we read, and he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto glass. The cubit is the distance from the elbow to the forefinger, so it's about half a metre or 18 inches typically. Uh, but notice that we're told that this is the angel's cubit that's being measured. Um, so we've got somewhere in the region of a wall that is 300 feet thick. This is just a wall. And the wall is made of solid jasper. It's precious gemstone. And the city itself is of pure gold. It's transparent, so pure that you can see through it. Uh, and then we're told again, the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Uh, the first was a jasper and then a sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardis, crystallite, beryl, topaz, uh, chrysoprasus, uh, jacinth, and then an amethyst. These 12 stones. Now, again, walls of jasper, the cities of gold, foundation of the 12 stones, which again, just help us to rem- remind us of the high priest breastplate in Exodus 28, which had the same 12 stones in it. The gates are made out of these single huge pearls. Interestingly, pearl is symbolic of the Gentiles. It's not kosher for the Jews. The streets, this pure gold, so pure, it's see-through, it's transparent like glass. Just to give you an idea, these are just what the kind of colours would be like of these stones, these gemstones that are going to make the foundation of this incredible city. And uh, these will be in the slides. You can just come back and look at these if you want to. Now, there's questions as to how this is going to be. Well, we have these uh, foundation stones upon which the city is built above it. Some commentators seem to think that's the case. Uh, and, it, of course, we know that the dimensions are going to be 1,500 miles roughly on each side. Uh, or will it be, and this is possibly more likely, that each of the, the areas around the city, the foundations, will cover roughly about 500 miles each, and the, the foundation stones will be going around the city. Uh, either way, it's going to be breathtaking to see this incredible depth and, uh, and beauty, the, the colour. You know, when, when we, we'll talk about the light in a second, but when the light's shining on these things, it will be staggering. We're told that the gates were 12 pearls, every silver gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold as transparent glass. Notice, by the way, that St. Peter is not standing at the gates. Uh, that's some uh, uh, mythology that's entered into Christendom, and we tend to talk about St. Peter meeting people at the pearly gates. If anybody ever says that to you, correct them immediately. Uh, our entrance is not dependent on if we've been good or bad, but on our standing with Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't get to decide either. Uh, and we're going to face him one way or another, either as our Lord 
or as our judge. We're told that there was no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb of the temple. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Again, staggering things. Jesus being told that is the light of this city. There is no sun. Now that's really hard for us to try and imagine light without the sun. But you know, we go back and look in Genesis and we're told is God creates everything that God said, let there be light and there was light. Now, if we look at that verse in the Hebrew just quickly, what we see is quite interesting. The Hebrew words literally are said Elohim, the name of God, be light be light that's actually what the hebrew says what's interesting is if we were to paraphrase that it's and god said let light be light or another way of saying it is god said let light illuminate now why am i making this point well because if that's the case what it's implying even in genesis is that light already existed that light for it to illuminate now had to already exist now that's what we find throughout scripture the god who commands the light to shine out of darkness to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice that the light is commanded to shine. Well, that means the light must exist for it to be commanded to shine. It was pre-existent. This is a really hard thing for us to try and grapple with. But Isaiah adds a little bit. He says in Isaiah 45, speaking, God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The word create there, bara, is out of nothing. Darkness is created out of nothing. Darkness exists because of the light or because of the lack of light. The word yatsa, though, where we thought I form the light, is to mold into a form, to fashion or so on. So all of these things throughout scripture indicate the same thing, that light was preexistent in the person of Jesus Christ. In John eight twelve, Jesus said again to them, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say I'm like a light. I am the light. And he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 1 John 1 5. This then is the message we've heard of him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Does say God is like light? He said he is light. See, light was pre existent in the person of Jesus Christ, and God commands the light to shine. Light simply then illuminates. Jesus Christ, the pre existent one, who is the light, created all things. From a physics point of view, this is really hard to grapple with, but this is what scripture tells us. Interestingly, physicists tell us that every particle has an antiparticle. Now, if you get a particle and antiparticle to collide, they wipe each other out, they annihilate each other, but they produce a photon of light. This is apparently what physicists tell us. But what's interesting is, it's been suggested it could be, nobody's actually done this, but it could be a reversible reaction. Now, that would mean if you started with light and it went the other way, you would end up with matter. So the implication is light could have created matter. Well, what does scripture tell us? Way ahead of the science always. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteneth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, 
he gave to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Okay, let's just tell this off then. So picking up back in Revelation, uh, chapter 1, 20, verse 22. And I saw no temple, as we've read this a moment ago, uh, for the Lord uh, God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The city again has no sun. God, the Lamb, is the light of it. Uh, in Isaiah 60, we're told there, uh, in confirmation of these things, that the sun shall be no more. Uh, thy light by day, neither thy brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. Um but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light and thy glory, thy, uh, thy God, thy glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thy everlasting light and the days of thy morning shall be ended. And we're told that the nations of them which shall uh, walk in the light of it and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. Now, who are the nations? Who compose these nations in this new heavens and new earth? Well, it may well be the tribulation martyrs, those who were not part of the church, but came to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. It could also be those who were born during the millennial reign. Some suggested it could be the sheep nations, as addressed already in Matthew 25. Um, but I suspect those will have been judged at the Great White Throne Judgment. So, But certainly the first two there, the Tribulation Martyrs and those born, born during the millennium, may well be those who go into this new heaven and this new earth. But of course the church, the Bride of Christ, will be the ones, the only ones permitted in the city. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honour for the nations into it, and they shall in no wise enter into anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's why it's perfect, because nothing that's impure or imperfect will be allowed in. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of Eden, on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bears twelve manner of fruits and yields of fruit every month. Interesting, every month, he implies there will still be time. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of a verse in Revelation where people say there will be no time in eternity i know there's a kind of paradox there but there'll still be some measure of time because each of these trees will bring forth fruit in their months and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations now again again the water of life just uh, reminds us of what jesus said in john 4 verse 10 uh again if we drink of that water we'll never thirst and this healing of the nations i got that interesting thought the word uh is a therapia is health giving is really what it implies there shall be no more curse for the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it. That's undoing all that was done in Genesis as a result of the curse. It'll all be gone and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face. We are going to get to look into the face of God and his name shall be in their foreheads. That's why our foreheads need to be reserved for the name of God, not for a mark for buying and selling, not for anything else. No, no more curse. It'll all be changed. The undoing of Genesis 3, as I said. Uh, in Psalm 17, David said, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And what a day that will be. And there shall be no night there and there's there no need uh, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun for the Lord giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Notice they shall reign. This is the promise that is given to believers. This is all that which is ahead of us. And he said unto me, these things are faithful and true once again. Uh, and that's just simply just again means a dependable without fiction. 
Um, and the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. So is this all just symbolic? Well, no, not at all. You see, the tabernacle was full of symbolism and yet it was real. The temple was full of symbolism and yet it was real. And so also in the New Jerusalem. This is the reality. This is what we are looking forward to. This is our eternal home. Remember again where we started. John 14. In my father's house and many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so we find this statement. It is done. All debts have been paid. All judgments have been completed. All promises have been fulfilled. All sorrow has been comforted. All longings have been appeased. All desire has been satisfied. No wonder Abraham was content to dwell in tents for now. Just one final thing. There was a story told, and I believe it was uh, Harry Truman was the president who'd been away for a few weeks on a trip and he was coming back to America uh, on a, a ship. And there was a great fanfare and the, um, the bands had come out to welcome him home and all the sailors had come out to welcome him that were on boats nearby and great crowds have gathered to welcome him back. But on the same ship coming back into port, there was an old couple who had been missionaries for 30 years They'd been abroad serving as missionaries faithfully. They'd given up their home. They'd given up their family to go and serve the Lord on foreign ground. But they were coming home. And as they entered the port, they could hear the fanfare. They could hear the noise. You know, the only reason they'd returned was because their health was failing. And they agreed that they would just come home for the final years of their life. And as they got to the plank, or to the, 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 as they were disembarking the ship, they looked. And the wife said to the husband, look at all this. The president's been away for a few weeks and all these people come out. This great noise and pomp and ceremony and fanfare, people cheering and people throwing flowers and all these great things. We've been away for 30 years and there's not a soul here to greet us. The husband just looked at his wife and said, darling, we're not home yet. You know, all the challenges that we face, all the hardships you know, there may be pomp and fanfare for things that the world does, but we're not home yet. There will be a day of rejoicing like none other when we get to stand before our Savior face to face and we get to see the inheritance of the saints. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, help us to have a different perspective. Lord, that in the trials and the challenges, in the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of now, Lord, help us to see through these things, Lord, that there is a day coming when all of these things will be forgotten, when we will look into your face, when we will walk on those streets of gold. Lord, we will be surrounded by those that love you, that have lived their lives for your glory. We'll be, Lord, surrounded by your angelic hosts. But most important, we will be, Lord, overwhelmed by your Shekinah glory. Oh, Lord, help us to live like heaven is a real place, like the new Jerusalem really is our eternal home. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.